This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of rotator cuff arthropathy from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Rotator cuff arthropathy is a specific pattern of shoulder degenerative joint disease that results from rotator cuff tears that lead to loss of joint congruence, results in abnormal glenohumeral wear, and leads to a specific pattern of degenerative joint disease. Rotator cuff arthropathy is characterized by the combination of rotator cuff insufficiency, glenohumeral cartilage destruction, superior migration of the humeral head, subchondral osteoporosis, and humeral head collapse. Again, rotator cuff arthropathy is characterized by the combination of rotator cuff insufficiency, glenohumeral cartilage destruction, superior migration of the humeral head, subchondral osteoporosis, and humeral head collapse. As far as the epidemiology of rotator cuff arthropathy, females are affected more than males, and the seventh decade is most common to see rotator cuff arthropathy. As far as location, this is more common in the dominant shoulder. Risk factors include a rotator cuff tear, rheumatoid arthritis, crystalline-induced arthropathy, and a hemorrhagic shoulder, which can occur in the setting of hemophiliacs and the elderly on anticoagulants. As far as the pathophysiology of cuff tear arthropathy, we have to consider mechanical factors, nutritional factors, and crystalline-induced arthropathy. With respect to mechanical factors, there is loss of the concavity due to compression effect. There's also decreased range of motion and shoulder function, humeral head migration, and instability with possible recurrent dislocations. As far as nutritional factors, there is loss of the watertight joint space, decreased joint fluid, and cartilage atrophy, which is a decrease in water and glycosaminoglycan content, and there is also subchondral collapse, which is otherwise known as disuse osteoporosis. Finally, with respect to crystalline-induced arthropathy, degradation proteins in the synovium destroy the rotator cuff and cartilage. End-stage disease leads to calcium phosphate crystal deposits. Moving on to the classification of rotator cuff arthropathy, the two to know include the Seabauer classification of rotator cuff arthropathy and the Hamada classification of rotator cuff arthropathy. The Seabauer classification of rotator cuff arthropathy is divided into two types, which are further subdivided into subtypes A and B. Type 1A is the centered and stable type and is characterized by intact anterior restraints, minimal superior migration, dynamic joint stabilization, and femoralization of the humeral head and acetabularization of the coracoacromial arch. Type 1B is the centered and medialized type and is characterized by intact or compensated anterior restraints, minimal superior migration, compromised joint stabilization, and medial erosion of the glenoid. Type 2A is a decentered and limited stability type that is characterized by compromised anterior restraints, superior translation, and minimum stabilization by the coracoacromial arch. And finally, type 2B is the decentered and unstable type, which is characterized by incompetent anterior restraints, an anterior superior escape, non-existent dynamic stabilization, and no coracoacromial arch stabilization. The Hamada classification of rotator cuff arthropathy is divided into five grades. Grade 1 is characterized by an acromiohumeral interval of greater than or equal to 6 millimeters. Grade 2 is characterized by an acromiohumeral interval of less than or equal to 5 millimeters. Grade 3 has an acromiohumeral interval of less than or equal to 5 millimeters with acetabularization of the acromion. Grade 4 is subdivided into types 4A and 4B. 4A is glenohumeral arthritis without acetabularization and an acromiohumeral interval of less than 7 millimeters, while 4B 
is characterized by glenohumeral arthritis with acetabularization and an acromiohumeral interval of less than or equal to 5 millimeters. And finally, grade 5 is characterized by humeral head collapse. As far as the presentation of rotator cuff arthropathy, symptoms include pain, including night pain, subjective weakness, and subjective stiffness. On physical exam, inspection and palpation may reveal supraspinatus-slash-infraspinatus atrophy, prominence of the humeral head anteriorly, otherwise known as anterosuperior escape, with elevation of the arm. Other findings with inspection and palpation may be a subcutaneous effusion from loss of fluid from the capsule. As far as range of motion testing, you may find limitations in active and passive range of motion, crepitus in the glenohumeral and or subacromial joints with range of motion, and pseudoparalysis, which is characterized by an inability to abduct the shoulder. Provocative tests include the external rotation lag sign and the hornblower sign. The external rotation lag sign is an inability to maintain a passively externally rotated shoulder with the elbow at 90 degrees. An external rotation lag sign is consistent with a massive infraspinatus tear. The hornblower sign is an inability to externally rotate or maintain passive external rotation of a shoulder placed in 90 degrees of elbow flexion and 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. A hornblower sign is consistent with Terry's minor dysfunction. As far as imaging for rotator cuff arthropathy, recommended views on radiographs include a complete shoulder series, which includes an AP, axillary, and Grashy view, otherwise known as a true AP. Findings may include acromial acetabularization on the true AP, femoralization of the humeral head on the true AP, asymmetric superior glenoid wear, lack of osteophytes, osteopenia, the snow cap sign due to subchondral sclerosis, and or anterosuperior escape. An MRI is not necessary if the humeral head is already showing anterosuperior escape on x-rays. However, findings may show an irreparable rotator cuff tear with massive fatty infiltration and severe retraction. Treatment of rotator cuff arthropathy can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management involves activity modification, subacromial steroid injections, and physical therapy. This is the first line of treatment. With respect to the technique, physical therapy should be done with a scapular and rotator cuff strengthening program. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can be given, and subacromial steroid injections can also be administered. Operative options include arthroscopic debridement, hemiarthroplasty, reverse shoulder arthroplasty, latissimus dorsi transfer, pectoralis transfer, and resection arthroplasty. Indications for arthroscopic debridement are controversial. As far as outcomes, you will have unpredictable results, but keep in mind that you must maintain the coracoacromial arch without acromioplasty or release of the coracoacromial ligament. Hemiarthroplasty can be indicated if the anterior deltoid is preserved and the coracoacromial arch is intact. Deficiency of the coracoacromial arch will lead to subcutaneous humeral escape. Hemiarthroplasty can also be indicated for younger patients with an active lifestyle. As far as outcomes of hemiarthroplasty, this will relieve pain but will not improve function, as the motion will be limited to 40 to 70 degrees of elevation. Reverse shoulder arthroplasty is indicated in the setting of pseudoparalytic cuff tear arthropathy. This option is preferred in the elderly, which is defined as age greater than 70, with a low activity level. Reverse shoulder arthroplasty is also indicated in the setting of an anterosuperior escape, and keep in mind that this option requires a functioning deltoid, that is an intact axillary nerve, and good bone stock. Remember that the deltoid is used to assist the glenohumeral joint to act like a fulcrum in elevation. As far as outcomes of reverse shoulder arthroplasty, it has the potential to improve both function and pain, 
However, there is a risk of inferior scapular notching with poor technique. A latissimus dorsi transfer is indicated for pseudoparesis with external rotation, and keep in mind that it can be done in combination with reverse shoulder arthroplasty. A pectoralis transfer is indicated for internal rotation deficiency and subscapularis insufficiency. As far as the techniques, the upper portion or whole pectoralis tendon is transferred near the subscapularis insertion on the lesser tuberosity. Complications include musculocutaneous nerve injury. Resection arthroplasty is indicated as a salvage option only, that is in the setting of chronic osteomyelitis, infections, or poor soft tissue coverage. Glenoid resurfacing is contraindicated for rotator cuff arthropathy as excess shear stress on the superior glenoid leads to failure through loosening. In addition, a total shoulder arthroplasty is also contraindicated in the setting of rotator cuff arthropathy. Surgical complications to be aware of include infection, neurovascular injury, deltoid dysfunction, and instability, which is more common after hemiarthroplasty, and it's rare after reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, The usual presentation of traumatic subscapularis tears is most often seen after forced, and the choices are 1. Internal rotation, 2. External rotation, 3. Extension, 4. Abduction, and 5. Forward flexion. So the typical mechanism of injury is a fall and the patient grasps something to prevent the fall. This maneuver forces the arm into external rotation against resistance. So the correct answer to this question is 2, external rotation. Moving on to the next question. A 75-year-old man who is right-hand dominant has had a painful right shoulder for the past 6 months with no improvement with non-surgical management. Examination reveals an active motion of 60 degrees of forward flexion and abduction with severe crepitus and pain. Radiographs reveal a high-riding humeral head with severe glenohumeral arthritic changes. What is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Humeral head resurfacing, 2. Humeral head arthroplasty, 3. Reverse shoulder arthroplasty, 4. Total shoulder arthroplasty, and 5. Arthroscopic shoulder debridement. So, in an older age group, the most predictable outcome is obtained with a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. So, the correct answer to this question is 3. Treatment with the standard hemiarthroplasty is more unpredictable in that the pain relief is typically good to excellent in 75% of patients, but the function is poor in most patients. A total shoulder arthroplasty is contraindicated as a result of the significant shearing forces that the glenoid would experience as a result of the rotator cuff deficiency. Arthroscopic lavage and debridement is ineffective in such advanced cases. Moving on to the next question, reverse total shoulder arthroplasty combined with latissimus dorsi transfer would be most appropriate for which of the following patients? And the choices are 1. A 75-year-old male with post-traumatic shoulder arthritis after a four-part proximal humerus fracture with no motor dysfunction. 2. 63-year-old male with a grade 4 shoulder arthritis with severe deltoid muscle dysfunction secondary to a stroke. 3. 80-year-old female with significant rotator cuff arthropathy, a negative hornblower sign, and less than 5 degrees of external rotation lag. 4. A 70-year-old female with pseudoparesis of anterior elevation and external rotation, narrowing of the glenohumeral joint, and acetabularization of the acromion. 
and 5, an 82-year-old male with a grade 4 shoulder arthritis and an isolated supraspinatus tear. So a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty combined with latissimus dorsi transfer would be most appropriate in a patient with pseudoparesis of anterior elevation and external rotation in the setting of shoulder arthritis or a narrowing of the glenohumeral joint and acetabularization of the acromion. So the correct answer to this question is four, a 70-year-old female with pseudoparesis of anterior elevation and external rotation, narrowing of the glenohumeral joint and acetabularization of the acromion. Combining a latissimus dorsi transfer with a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty helps to restore control of active external rotation. Dysfunction with external rotation can be determined clinically with external rotation lag sign, a positive hornblower sign, and radiographically with fatty degeneration of the teres minor classified as stage 2 or greater according to the system of Goutalier et al. or Fuchs et al. Gerber et al. found that reverse total shoulder arthroplasty with combined lat dorsi transfer yielded minimal improvements in external rotation range of motion compared to increases in shoulder range of motion in flexion and abduction with this procedure. Bolo et al. examined 17 consecutive patients treated with reverse shoulder arthroplasty and latissimus dorsi and teres major transfer. They found that external rotation increased from negative 21 degrees to 13 degrees, and they recommended transferring both the latissimus dorsi and teres major rather than the latissimus dorsi alone as it results in better active external rotation. And moving on to the last question, Following open pectoralis major transfer to address chronic subscapularis insufficiency, which of the following movements would most likely show weakness if an iatrogenic nerve injury occurred during the pectoralis transfer? And the choices are 1. Elbow flexion, 2. Elbow extension, 3. Shoulder external rotation, 4. Shoulder adduction, and 5. Shoulder abduction. So during open pectoralis major tendon transfer for chronic subscapularis deficiency, the musculocutaneous nerve is most at risk. Injury to this nerve would lead to weakness in elbow flexion, making number one the correct answer to this question. Musculocutaneous nerve neuropraxia is a known complication of the procedure caused by increased tension on the nerve. The transfer tendon should be placed deep to the conjoint tendon, but superficial to the nerve to decrease tension. A proximal musculocutaneous nerve neuropraxia could cause weakness in elbow flexion due to its innervation of the biceps and brachialis muscles. Kleps et al. performed a cadaveric study to examine the surgically relevant anatomy of subcoracoid pectoralis transfer. Transfer of the pectoralis major superficial to the musculocutaneous nerve created less tension than transfer deep to the musculocutaneous nerve. They concluded release of the proximal musculocutaneous branches or debulking of the pectoralis major muscle belly may be required in some instances to prevent tension on the musculocutaneous nerve. Jost et al. found that in cases of irreparable subscapularis muscle function, pectoralis major transfer resulted in improvement for patients if they had an associated repairable supraspinatus tear. Patients with irreparable tears of both the subscapularis and supraspinatus had less favorable results. That's all for this review about rotator cuff arthropathy. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. 
If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.